COVID is over. We don't have to wear masks anymore, and we can pretty much travel the world as we wish. It's also time to go back to the office. But is it really business as usual? This management expert says we shouldn't get too comfortable. The next crisis is coming, and the companies and people who prepare for it now are the ones that will win in the future. Erica James is the dean of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania in the US, and she's been named one of the top 10 women of power in education. Trained as an organizational psychologist, she has studied leaders and companies for two decades. I'm Ling Chue Ling, executive producer and journalist with CNA, and this is In Conversation with Erica James. Dean Erica James, welcome to In Conversation. Thank you, Lynn. I'm delighted to be here. It's been three years of COVID. Even CEOs are human. We are tired. Do we really need to prepare for a new crisis? <laughs> you know, I get that question a lot, and I think I understand why people ask that question. But the answer is unfortunately yes, because history will tell us that time and again, another crisis is looming around the corner. And it's our inability or unwillingness to prepare for it that allows it to have a greater impact than it probably necessarily needs to have. Okay, so you say we need to be preparing for the next crisis. But the crises are enormously different. There's a big difference between a pandemic and let's say what's happened in India recently where uh, a report has been made on a big group like the Adani group and they've been criticized and where the stock market roils and uh, stock prices plummet. Stock prices falling, pandemic, that's very different. How is any company going to prepare for both? Right. Think of it as an exercise. We all, at least our doctors tell us we're supposed to exercise. The reason is that we create muscle memory. We create a, a memory in our bodies and in our minds and in our behaviors that allow us to understand how to react and respond when something new happens. So even though we might be preparing for one particular type of crisis, or even though we may have just experienced one particular type of crisis, the fact that we may experience something very different in the future, if we have exercised our mod minds, our bodies, our behaviors, our culture within the organization, then we are more likely to be able to navigate the next thing, even if it's not something specific that we were anticipating. Okay, so I'm the CEO, I've set up my crisis management committee. Wonderful, I've done it. I've done what you said, you know, Professor, marvelous, we're done. No, not quite. Uh, I, I wish it were that easy, but actually what we need is to ensure that everyone in our organization is thinking about and able to communicate what they're seeing at their level in the organization. Oftentimes crises are happening in places that are uh, blind, the, the CEO or the senior executives might be blind to some of the issues that they're facing. But when we have open channels of communication, when we are explicitly asking for information to know and understand what's going on in our organization, we become much more ready to anticipate and to be able to mitigate or prevent crises from happening. So the crisis management committee is not enough? I strongly believe that having a focused group of people who are responsible and accountable for responding to crisis is important. And yet, generally, we draw those people from very senior levels in the organization. And those senior levels are likely not to have 
the information that leads them to understand what's truly going on in the organization. So it's important to be very intentional about reaching out to people at different levels, in different business units, if you're a global or multinational organization, re reaching out and talking to people at different uh, geographic regions, because that's where you're going to get information. And it's not just from a very narrow group of senior executives with whom you generally spend most of your time anyways. Okay, so cooking it down to what is, what are the top three things that if I was a CEO, I have to do? So I think number one is to identify the vulnerabilities. If you live in particular regions that are susceptible to weather events and you have a plant or a facility that could be damaged, Obviously, that's something you need to be preparing for. But there are also other types of events that we might not necessarily know to prepare for. And we have to go through the exercise of asking what if questions. We have to think about the hypotheticals. Number two is identify uh, the people in your organization who are best capable of providing the information that you will need. And then number three, I think, is making sure that we're able to navigate and pivot very quickly. And that means, do we have a culture of managing and responding to change? If in non-crisis times, we find that our workforce is in a, unable to manage and navigate change, then rest assured that they're not going to be prepared or ready to navigate change in the time of crisis. But what about the small company? Mm. They're the dominant size in Asia. In fact, the company that only has under 50, sometimes only 10 employees, who am I going to allocate to do all these things you've just talked about? In smaller companies, uh, a mom and pop shop, for example, you don't have those same resources, but you still have one or two people, or you might have advisors, or you might have people outside of your organization. You might have peers that work in similar types of businesses as you. Forming a network that will allow you to uh, identify some of the challenges that your business or that your industry regardless of size, is susceptible to. Oftentimes we see a peer or a competitor experience a crisis and we think, whew, I'm so glad that wasn't me, right? And we assume that that will never happen to us. And we don't take the time to really think about and learn from what you observed from someone else's crisis. But when we take the time to do that, then we're building in a capability, even in small organizations, to say that went really well for them or this didn't go really well for them. So let's make sure that we either mirror what they've done or we ensure that we don't do what they've done. One of the examples that you have in your book was you were talking about um, you know, how people handled the COVID crisis. And there was an example out of the UK, a company that did uh, nightclubs and F&B and where they had laid off a lot of their people, in fact, very early on in the whole crisis, saying to them, you need to find another job. Right. Now, they got a lot of very bad press for that. But ironically, was that not the right thing to do? Yes, it, it actually was very sage advice. And what that was telling the workforce, that the CEO recognized something that was pending, created a plan, and provided advice to the workforce. The alternative would have been keep them employed until it was too late and then you lay them off suddenly where they don't have the options to seek additional employment. And it's very difficult because sometimes those drastic decisions means that you're adversely affecting the well-being or welfare of people. And these are people that you've worked with, people that you've lived with, people that you've known, you know their families, you know how they operate in the, in the communities. And that's hard. 
but that's what being a leader is, having to make those very difficult decisions. Warren Buffett, Anil Ambani, Elon Musk. These business bigwigs all studied at this brand name business school. But it still took 141 years for Wharton Business School to select a woman and a person of color for its top post. You're sitting here, a fantastic example of diversity, and yet it took Wharton, the place that you are dean of, 141 years to put a woman and a person of color in your seat. That's a long time, 141 <laughs> years, and you can't say that it sounds terribly nimble. Yes, it is a very long time. And the reality is, at least in the U.S., the structures and the history and the legacy for how organizations evolved, who they were intended to serve, it's a very long-standing history. Um, I wish that more organizations would have been more progressive and open and receptive to recognizing the talent that exists around the world and in different people from different backgrounds. But the reality is we weren't there and we weren't ready. The point from now on is we have made this decision. We've tried uh, something new. And the question is, are we going to continue to recognize the opportunities that exist and the talent that exists in the workforce? I fundamentally believe that until we're ensuring that we are leveraging all of the talent that exists, we can never be a competitive business school. We will never be a competitive organization. We will never be a competitive society. I also think it's very reflective of where we are in the world. We are a much more diverse community and a much more diverse and global world. And so I think we're, we will start to see much more uh, diversity in leadership positions going forward. A lot of the arguments that people make is, is because they say that diversity is better for the bottom line. There are numerous studies yes. that show that having women on your board, in fact, having a woman as your CEO is really good for the bottom line. But what if the people who own these companies don't care about the bottom line that much in the sense that they would rather have a comfortable old boys club, possibly an old boys white, or in our part of the world, whatever color is dominant in your country. Yeah, unfortunately, those kinds of organizations and people who hold those beliefs exist in the world. I think that they are an increasing minority of people. Um, the reality also is that those organizations will not sustain themselves going forward. The population of people that is homogeneous to what that organization was originally, how it was originally founded, is shrinking. The white male population in the United States, as one example, is in decreasing in number. And so if that's all we're willing to uh, bring into our organization, then we will have fewer and fewer opportunities to identify and select and, and maintain uh, top talent. So companies make those decisions at their own peril. I will share with you the other thing. What I'm observing in our student population at the Wharton School is that this generation of young people wants to be a part of an environment or a community or an organization that is much more diverse. And they are choosing not to go into those organizations that demonstrate a, a preference for homogeneity. You've also talked about being the only, in other words, you were perhaps the only woman, sometimes the only person of color in your entire faculty. Mm -hmm. 
and that that brings a special scrutiny. Yes. People look at you more. Is that saying that if you had been a white man, you wouldn't have had that much critical viewing of every single thing that you were doing? Absolutely. Yes. So the white guy has it easier, at least in the United States? I'm sure that they wouldn't say that. Uh, but what I, the, the research will tell you, in my own anecdotal experience, is that when you are different from the majority, and it doesn't matter in what distinction, right? When you are the anomaly, people find that very curious. And it's not curious in a good way or curious in a bad way. They're just curious, which means their attention is going to be drawn to you, which means the good things that you do will be noticed and perhaps extra rewarded because people don't expect that from you. But the bad things, the mistakes that you do, that you make, will also be much more visible and might be um, uh, associated with a particular stereotype of the group that you represent. So I think that scrutiny and that curiosity is true and it works in both directions. If I can just give you one example. Many years ago my daughter uh, was part of a dance troupe and it, we were living in an urban environment. Most of the dance team were young black kids. When we showed up for the recital there was one student, one young boy, white hair, uh, blonde hair, white skin, blue eyes, amidst a sea of black dancers. And I was so mesmerized by this child wanting to see, does he really know how to dance? Does he, can he really keep up with this group? That I only focused my attention on that child, not my own child who was also in the dance troupe. And it wasn't that I was conscious of that, but it was, I was so curious how this one person who was different was going to navigate in the sea of people of color. They'll get the extra attention and they will get everything that goes along with it. So if you are someone who gets extra attention and you're a superstar, that means that your career might be catapulted. If you're, if you're the person who's getting extra attention and you make a mistake, your career might go in the complete opposite direction because people are less likely to trust what they don't know or what they have not experienced before. So if I'm a minority, whatever that minority might be in, in one, whatever particular society, why would I take that risk? I think you take the risk because you know the opportunities are great. I'm sitting at the helm of the world's leading business school because I was willing to take risks to put myself in positions and in roles where I was going to be more scrutinized. But I knew that I had a belief that I could contribute something valuable to the organizations in the positions that I was in leading up to this being dean of the Wharton School. And I think people have to have that level of confidence and build the network around them to support them in making the decisions that will be perceived as risky and that are um, much more challenging and difficult than what other people might experience. What do you say to other young women or men who say to you, oh, I, I don't think I want to do that. I've never done it before. Mm. I don't want to apply for that job. Yes. I, I will say to them that I can relate because I have said those same things about myself as well. Uh, but there are two different, there are two different issues that you're, you're raising. One is, 
I don't want that position, which is very valid and legitimate. But to say I don't want this job because I've never done it before, or I don't think I'm good enough, or I'm not prepared enough, that's something different because those are all things that you can change. You can gain the experience. You can build the network of support that you need to allow you to be successful in the organization. I encourage them to identify, look at the track record you've already demonstrated. It's been a track record of success or you wouldn't be positioned for this next level. But Professor, do you believe in positive discrimination? So positive discrimination can lead to, to good outcomes. For example, we always, imagine you're, you're an executive, you need to make some hiring decisions. And imagine there's no diversity in your talent pool, but you have to choose between four Asian men, all in their mid-30s, all with prestigious academic backgrounds. You have to make one choice. So you are going to discriminate against something for some reason. When we talk about discrimination in the United States, we assume that we are discriminating against a minority group. But we also have to recognize that even when there are no differences in the marketplace or no differences in the talent pool, we still have to discriminate against something. So I want to broaden how we think about and use the term discrimination. And I think we actually need to find a better term for it because it is so heavily weighted toward the negativity. Asia accounts for almost 39% of global GDP, and some of the biggest companies in the world are Asian. But do Asian companies do business differently from American businesses? And if so, are Dean Erica James' business ideas even relevant to this part of the world? Asian companies are now some of the biggest in the world. What do you say to Asian companies who ask you, what can I learn from your research? Well, my research largely is around creating uh, the competencies and the skills necessary to be effective leaders, but also to be effective leaders in times of crisis. Crises don't just happen in the United States. Crises happen all over the world, and anyone who is responsible for products or services and or people should be prepared to experience something that is unexpected and that takes them away from their strategic trajectory that they've laid out so beautifully uh, because something, whether it's external or something internal, it might be their own norms and culture that has led to a set of challenges. Uh, my work helps leaders understand how to identify, how to be responsive to, and how to learn from crises so that we can create the proverbial opportunity from crisis, as people always say. What if they say, no, Asian companies are fundamentally culturally different. We're not the same. You can study Shell, Exxon, McKinsey, all of them, but essentially they're culturally different from us. I, I believe that's true. They are culturally different, but they are not... Uh, they are not immune from experiencing a crisis. So just take the, the crisis everyone around the world has just experienced, the pandemic, right? That had nothing to do with any organization, but every organization in Asia, in the US, in Africa, in South America, every organization was affected by that pandemic. And it required real leadership at the political level and at the organizational level to navigate through that crisis. So no one is immune, regardless of the cultural uh, idiosyncrasies associated with any one environment. What about economic development, though, of the country? Uh, 
it seems a little remote to say that a CEO of a company in Jakarta is the very same as a CEO of a company in Los Angeles. No, that is absolutely true. So yes, there are lots of learnings that we can take from other organizations, other leaders, uh, but we also have to recognize that they're operating in a different context and we have to be very clear about uh, what is unique to our situation and manage around that. People may not know, but you actually are on the advisory boards of various uh, Asian uh, universities as well. What is it they ask you? So they're very interested in understanding the same thing that universities in the United States are interested in. Uh, how do we ready the next generation for the kind of work and the opportunities that exist, particularly as two things are happening. One, we are becoming increasingly global and integrated, and we are becoming increasingly diverse as a community. And all of that, well, and I would also add that technology is changing much more drastically and rapidly than most universities have been prepared to, uh, to address. So I think those are some of the key issues that we talk about as members of the board of, of these most prestigious universities, whether they're in Asia or whether they're in the United States. We're all addressing the same challenges. Okay, this is your TikTok moment. If this was the one message you had to give to an Asian CEO about how to prepare for the next crisis, what would it be? I firmly believe that it is most helpful if we pay attention and learn from the experiences that we have already gone through or that we're mindful about the experiences that we have seen others in our industry or in our sector go through. Learn from those experiences. Talk about those experiences within your organization to prepare your, your teammates uh, for the work that will be coming and identify what the future state is should some crisis similar to that or even a different crisis. Should something take you off your strategic game, what's the vision that you want to leave with your organization? So fundamentally it goes back to the practice of learning from others and from your own experiences. Erica James, thank you very much for being on In Conversation. Thank you, Lynn. You've been listening to a podcast version of a television interview with Erica James. Dean of Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania in the U.S. This is part of CNA's longest-running weekly interview show, In Conversation. When in season, In Conversation airs every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Singapore time on MediaCorp CNA. You can also catch us online at cna.asia or on YouTube. I'm Ling Xueling, executive producer at Channel News Asia, and thank you for listening.